1: Hey, everybody, this is Phil Town.
0: And this is Danielle Town.
1: Welcome to the Invested Podcast, where we're talking, as you guys know, about how to invest. I mean, really, how to invest. That's, that's I it. liked
0: what you said last time, something about the endless pursuit of learning about investing.
1: Well, that is just at the root of all great investors, is they never <laughs> stop learning. <laughs> they never <laughs> stop learning. I'm sure I've told you guys about going over to see Waje Takeda and discovering that he wanted to meet me because I'd written, I mean, for somebody in Japan, my rule number one, it's got to be a bit of an obscure book, particularly for a billionaire investor. And here's this guy, 84 years old, and he's reading my book. I mean, it's just ridiculous to me about the level of constant learning that the very best investors in the world never, they never stop. They never stop. Charlie Munger's a learning machine at 97 years old. Yeah, 97 and he's learning. I mean, yeah. didn't Charlie just say how happy he was that he just found out one of those key things that he always believed in his whole life was totally not true. You know, he, he, he yeah, he says that regularly. Yeah. <laughs> Did he, he say it recently
0: seven. as well? <laughs> yeah. And he's just <laughs>
1: constantly learning and constantly trying to improve himself. Um, I, I just love that Warren Buffett constantly reading Buffett reads and he's 90 reading how many pages a week do you read? I mean, Buffett's ninety. Okay, yeah, about five hundred pages a week. Somebody estimated. Yeah, it's. I mean, crazy. He, he read our book.
0: How crazy well, is that? Let's not go that far. We know he looked at it and read the foreword.
1: <laughs> you are so humble. Well, I would be saying
0: you were he just saying. Read our book. I don't. I don't like putting words. I have too much respect for him to put words in his mouth or actions into his day. Well, he wrote Um, us a letter. He did. It was very nice. (laughs) (laughs)
1: Oh, man. He probably Um, did it because of you. Oh, gosh.
0: Well, (laughs) I did send him him the book about four different times. (laughs) Yeah, it was awesome.
1: So, okay, reading machines, learning machines, learning is important. We talked about that, and this podcast is all about learning, and we're learning while we do it, but trying to teach you what we know, what I've known for 40 years of doing this.
0: Well, but and I it just made me think because I'm anyway. reading the Buffett letters, his his letters to shareholders for the invested practice. And as I've said already through this, like what I'm learning mostly besides all my checklist items, which are amazing, is how wrong he is how, so often and how he, to your point about constantly learning, how he consistently owns up to it. It's not just like I was wrong. That's terrible. I don't like that. It sucked. It's like, I was wrong. Here's what happened. I'm going to try not to do that again, but I might cause I'm human. And then he usually does go and do it again
1: <laughs> <laughs> right?
0: and owns up to it. And it's just, it's just great. It's just a well, great on model. That point,
1: by the way, I wasn't planning on talking about this, but on that point, it's very important to understand that When Buffett is wrong, he realizes it and figures out a way to get out of these investments without taking major losses.
0: Absolutely.
1: And and the reason that it's so important, because you have to do it too. You know, we're going to be wrong. And we have to make, Mm -hmm. you have to recognize your mistake. The biggest mistakes I've made, which really cost me a lot of capital, cost my investors capital, was when I didn't recognize the error. And I just kept believing with kind of confirmation bias that I was right.
0: We talked about that a few episodes
1: ago. Yeah, Yeah, it's it's really interesting. It's so important that you do it because the advantage that you have over Buffett is massive. Warren can't just dump a bad investment. Yeah, that's true. It's very difficult for him to exit. Mm -hmm. Whereas you and me, we can get out in seconds. Okay, Mm -hmm. there there are investments where I'm big enough now where I can't just get out in seconds. And it's scary, really, that if you can't exit when you want to, you have to sit there at the mercy of the market when you've realized you you want out, you know?
0: Yeah, So that, that is a totally, I I do not have that problem, which. I mean,
1: it, thank the Lord. Is, is the only, it's
0: interesting. I hadn't really thought about the emotional part of that. But yeah, that is scary.
1: Well, I, I'm just saying thank thank God, you know, it's just the, the times I've felt that recently over the last few years have been times where I've made a lot of money and I wanted to get out i believe that this thing had run its course and um you know as the stock starts to drop you can feel the emotion kick in that you're leaving you know that was money on the table that was yours i mean and now it's gone because mm-hmm. the stock's dropping mm-hmm. right
0: mm-hmm. and
1: so that feeling is exacerbated when it's already a loss and it's dropping and it's dropping yeah i every can day imagine you can't get out
0: feels a little bit panicky i imagine
1: <clears throat> buffett said once um people were we uh, criticizing him at the annual meeting for staying in Coca-Cola after it got vastly overpriced. <clears throat> and, and he basically said, look, you know, I'm not nimble anymore. I can't just exit. I, You know, and he didn't explain why. But the obvious reason is that he's so large inside an investment like Coca-Cola that if he started bailing out, Coca-Cola stock would get halved in a week and he still wouldn't be out. So, you know, that's you don't have that problem. And you guys, that's a giant advantage. So, the critical thing is to constantly be learning, constantly review your investments, constantly stay on top of them, which I think you'll realize is impossible if you do what your financial advisor wants you to do and invest in a whole lot of things, right? Be (laughs) diversified across lots of different investments. Yeah. You You won't be able to keep up with any of them. Yeah. No, you it's funny. It small.
0: I just read the 2007 letter just today, and he says in it there are two things he checks at the end of the year. He does not check the price of the for publicly traded companies that he owns. He does not check the price of the stock. Doesn't care. He checks the earnings. How much money did this company make for him? And because that's how he sees it at the end of the year. And the second thing is, he checks how much wider the moat has gotten. No oh, man! He doesn't good. say how he checks that, unfortunately. See, learn
1: something every day. Look Isn't like that, that amazing, though? I mean, oh man, I'm writing this down. This is this was good. I, I I'm gonna find something to write on here. Nothing. To
0: I, I, like it's it's <laughs> it's the best. Okay, second to our podcast. It's the best education <laughs> one can get for free reading these letters. And it's been such a good discipline for me because I'm writing about them for the invested practice. And I get annoyed about that sometimes because it's extra, it's not extra work, but it's like work that I have to do. And yet that discipline has been everything because I've had to go back and choose which things are worth copying into the checklist and choose which things are worth saving and which things are not worth, um, summarizing. And it's, it's just, it makes me want to go back and do it again from the beginning. <laughs> although <laughs> although honestly, it's it so here. much, it's so much work that, um, I see why people don't do it. It's funny. But let's,
1: let's talk about that checklist thing. Let's let's talk about the short one. We've we've discussed this before. I think uh, Bill Ackman's
0: yeah point okay.
1: checklist; these eight principles. I think they're really cool. And I, we, I'm loving you know,
0: checklists. Let's talk.
1: And we we use this virtually every day as a as a kind of a high level screen. Say what this um, is. This is the Bill Ackman's eight principles or his checklist of eight things.
0: So Bill Ackman's a fund manager investor. This, generally very well known.
1: Managing $10 billion and super smart. And a while back, he made a couple of investments um, that turned out to be wrong, um, big time wrong, and lost him a lot of money. And as a result, he reviewed um, his his basic approach with his team of five other people and went back to the basics. And that's why I think this little This little uh, YouTube video or whatever we got here. What do we got? We we got Bill talking about it, I know.
0: Yeah. Okay. So we talked about this a number of episodes ago and we just thought this time, let's play the incredibly short little snippet. This is so short and he says the words so quickly. I guarantee you, you will not get them. I certainly don't. But then we'll talk about each one of them.
1: Okay. So. so Here's Ackman in an interview. And it's
0: on it's an interview with Bloomberg. Mm-hmm. And it's on YouTube. And you can go find it just by Googling like Ackman 8 or Bill Ackman principles. It'll come up. Here we go. Yep. Well, so basically one invest in simple, predictable, free cash flow-generative, dominant companies with large barriers to entry that earn high returns on capital, that have limited exposure to extrinsic risks we can't control, strong balance sheets, don't need access to capital. To survive, have excellent management, good governance. Sounds logical. That's it. <laughs> it's so short and so fast, and he clearly has them so dialed. That's hilarious, actually.
1: <laughs> did you get that while you're driving in your car, yeah, or did you exactly. just have a wreck?
0: Exactly. So from that,
1: <laughs> That's let's unload. Let's, let's unfold this because we do use this every day, and.
0: Well, it's uh, so funny that you Anna's. say that because we talked about it whenever we did those episodes and I w- found them so helpful that I wrote them out for myself and I keep them on my bulletin board in front of my desk and just so that I make sure I look at them on the regular. It's, and, and it they're goes, just, it, they're just good.
1: They're just and it good. goes It goes to the point that, I mean, we've done five years of podcasts around the basic principles that Charlie outlined. Which are, you know, make sure you understand the business. It's got a durable competitive advantage. It's got management you trust and you buy out the margin of safety. All right. But if you're not careful, these things just become words. And yeah, and that's a great pretty point. Soon you're not really attentive to what it means to be able to understand the business. So, what, and I think that happened to Bill, honestly, I think it happens to everybody. Well,
0: it, I think it makes a lot of sense. It's actually human nature because you're right. They do turn into just words. And then you start thinking about all the details of what goes into those four principles as we've done like crazy.
1: So I, I really like it that he's, he's made it clearer what Charlie means by being able to understand the business. By number one principle, that it's simple and predictable. Yeah, and that is actually better for us. We we like that better than are we capable of understanding? Because hubris can creep right in there, man. It's like, of course we are. We're smart.
0: Yeah, also a great right? point. Yeah, we're
1: experienced. I've been doing this mm-hmm. for forty years.
0: Certainly, I'm capable, I'm capable of understanding just about anything. Absolutely. Yeah.
1: But is it simple? Oh well. Hmm maybe not. So, But I'm so we,
0: smart that I'm capable of understanding. <laughs> right, <laughs> yeah. exactly. No, you're right. That's such a trap. Absolutely.
1: Simple and predictable. Those two things are so powerful. Just, just remember those two things and go back to Chipotle Mexican Grill. That's a, <laughs> <laughs> a simple, predictable business. That's so powerful. I'm going to give Ackman a huge credit for that. And and, and it means what it says. I mean, I don't have to really say anything about it. It just means that.
0: Yeah. Simple and business. and it covers two, actually. It covers both of those first ones from Buffett and Munger. Yep. Capable of To me, it does. Capable of understanding and having a durable, intrinsic, competitive advantage could be boiled down into predictable. Predictable,
1: yep. And it gets boiled down to the next thing, which is the second principle, which is free cash flow. Generative, it's just this thing's producing free cash flow. That is a huge um sim- uh, s- symptom of moat, if you will, right? You see huge cash flow, you're seeing a moat of some sort. Now, whether it's durable, right? That's that becomes a really critical thing. And mm-hmm. that's number three, that it's dominating,
0: mm-hmm. it's a
1: dominant market position. Mm-hmm. So I I gotta tell you, that's you can really get squirrely around that one. I was um, going to
0: say that's one that, that, that is difficult for people who are interested in newer companies in more up and coming companies.
1: Sure. They're not dominant yet. Right. Right. But you think they will be right. Or companies that have been around a long time and have, and here's where I get, I get a little bit um, off is that I, I look at a company that's dominating a niche hmm. and, and say, ah, oh, dominant market position. Hmm. They're in a they're in this little niche and they can control that. Um and and keep everybody out of it for some reason, right? For some some way that's structured intrinsically into the business they can keep people out of it. Like at Sprouts market, they've just have a dominant niche in buying organic food super cheap because they have a regional distribution system where their regional guy has got authority to go out and make deals with farmers. And it's very difficult for a large group like Whole Foods um, at Amazon now or a chain like Kroger's or Publix to do that. They're not going to give a regional guy that kind of authority. They want to centralize everything to keep their prices down.
0: Yeah. Are you saying that that's a useful way to think about it or that's a way that you've gotten in trouble with?
1: No, it's very useful to think okay. about a niche okay. in terms of of its dominance. so that, And then you can see it by comparing its free cash flow generation to those other companies. I mean, if this is a really good niche, it's going to generate a lot of free cash flow when other companies maybe won't. Hmm. And in fact, Sprouts does do that. Hmm. Enormously free cash flow generative. Okay, then the fourth one, which helps you with your dominant market position and your free cash flow, and is also very moody, is large barriers to entry.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer.
1: Now, this is is not easy here, guys. Large barriers to entry, you know? How do you know that a company has a large... Does Tesla have a large barrier to entry or not?
0: Maybe. I mean, I would say that there's different ones. Like, for example, a very high capital intensive industry that requires a lot of money to get into the game. I would call that a large barrier to entry. Or sure. uh, it's a lot of like the Modi stuff, you know, or it is something, very Modi. Uh, a business or an area where um, everybody just buys the standard brand. So, like, Coca Cola is a fantastic example of that. It's very hard to get into the. <laughs> What do you call that? What do Coke and Pepsi call
1: distribution?
0: No, but like, what do you call like the dark cola that Coke and Pepsi both are? There's some name for that. I don't know what it is. I don't know. Um, so if you want to make a dark cola and that's the niche that you're trying to get into, it's going to be really hard to get into that one because they've got the market.
1: Yeah. And they've got the market because they spend a tremendous amount of money and have for a hundred years. On branding, so they've got a piece of your head. I don't, and and the way the product tastes, right, is also you get a certain addiction yeah, exactly. to it, yeah, exactly. And that's what you want. I I'm a, I want a Coke. I don't drink Pepsi. I don't even like Pepsi. Right. So so right. I don't like to go to Taco Bell, yeah. even though I like tacos, because yeah. they don't have Cokes. Yeah. Right. So I'll <laughs> go eat crap.
0: McDonald's food. Let me just just say, for the benefit of the audience, is one hundred percent (laughs) true, and annoying when you want to have fast food of a certain type and you're in one car together. (laughs) (laughs) It is so
1: true. Yeah. So, um, large barrier to entry is massively important, and it's really easy to to make an error here, particularly if the business isn't simple. Right. Yeah. So. You, if you don't know what the barrier to entry is, just assume that it's too hard, the The, the company's too hard, and move on. you,
0: and you I got to th- know it. For me, this is a place of really thinking about what is the future bringing down for this industry or yeah. this niche yeah. in this industry? Good. What kind of barriers aren't going to exist in five years? And I'm thinking about the wrong stuff. This is like one of those, I'm selling encyclopedias question, and- mm-hmm. It's really Mm -hmm. hard to get into making encyclopedias because you have to have such a great uh, process of people to write them. And then you have to have printers and you have to just have distribution. It's a really great business with really high barriers to entry. Yep. Until nobody (laughs) wants an encyclopedia all of a sudden.
1: Right. Because everything's on the Internet. Yeah. 100% true. Large barriers to entry. So figure that out. That's super key. Um, And this next one is super easy. I mean, free cash flow is super easy because you can just look it up. And you could see it right there. Mm-hmm. High return on capital, also super easy. Just look it up. It's right there on, on every website. So oh, that's that the next anything.
0: one. Oh, no, wait. Yep. That's the second. That's to the know. next one. Yeah.
1: High return on capital. <clears throat> so that thing is more also is sim- a symptom of a deeper cause. It's a symptom of a good moat. If somebody's got a high return on capital, they're making you 20% a year on your, on your uh, borrowed money and your equity in your company. Man, they got something going on that's fabulous. If they're doing that year after year after year after year. In fact, when I'm looking at a company, Danielle, that is the absolute first thing I look at.
0: Oh, is it? Absolutely. I love process info. First thing you look at. If I don't see double
1: digit return on capital, return on equity, if I don't see double digits there, if I'm seeing 8.3, right, or something like that, and I'm looking at at least 10 years of data all at once. Um, which is why on, on the toolbox, I've got, now got 30 years of data so I can look at it really quickly and see. Mm, cool. If these guys are double digit, return on equity and return on capital for 30 years, like Coca-Cola is, mm-hmm. oh, okay, they've got a huge moat. There's gotta be a moat there. and I just gotta figure out what it is. Hopefully it's simple enough that I can. So high return on capital, massively important. Now I'm gonna jump one. We'll come back to, to, the, to the number six, but number seven is they don't need outside capital to survive. That's a strong balance sheet. Mm-hmm. What that means is they don't have debt. Let's just boil that down to that. They don't have debt and they got a lot of free cash flow. And those two things, no debt, high free cash flow, almost inevitably mean high return on capital. So if they yeah, don't I have mean, a lot I, of debt. I, I,
0: it's I do key. think that saying that equals no debt isn't necessarily Close the way he means enough. it. It's close. Like it could be that they're leveraging with debt for good reason, but they have the funds to pay it off and it's not a big deal. You know, something like that.
1: Okay. Then I'll give you a number. Don't let it go past three years of either free cash flow or earnings. Yes. In other words, if you look and you see that the earnings of the company are 200 million and the debt is a billion, that's too much. Now. uh, Okay. There's an exception. There's always exceptions. You know, (laughs) John Deere sells tractors and finances the tractors, right? So they have a finance wing and their debt looks gigantic, but it's really people owing them for the tractors they bought, not Mm. they borrowed money to build the tractor. So basically a strong balance sheet to me is the second thing I look for. I go ROIC debt. If I've got debt under three years and I've got great double digit Long-term return on capital. I'm real interested in that company. I'll start digging in on free cash flow, earn earnings, all that kind of stuff. Dominant market position. Okay, because I I can see it. It's right there. All right. Next, then dropping back to number six is limited exposure to extrinsic risk we can't control. Ooh. This is where you. This is what you were doing when you were saying, "Ha." Huh. Um, yeah. Know, I, I, I've, he has a I've whole separate.
0: Point for that, actually. Yeah. The yeah.
1: Encyclopedia Britannica problem is that they dominated right up until the internet wiped them out. Mm-hmm. You know, your great 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 grandfather worked in a harness company in Ottumwa, Iowa. It's a harness maker. <laughs> and he probably doesn't know any of this stuff. And so it was a surprise to him one day that there was no work. Because why? Cars had replaced horses. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, harnesses weren't so necessary. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you run a typewriter company and you have you have a computer coming out and you don't see it because you just are stuck looking at your narrow view of the world. Well, as an investor or an owner of that company, you can't afford a narrow view of the world. You have to constantly be aware of what's happening in that industry or outside that industry even that could come in and bite you in the butt. And that's extrinsic risk. And one, By the way, one of those... Extrinsic risk that's really difficult to work with is legislative risk. Oh, ah, true. that some Congress thing is going to come in and somehow really screw you up.
0: Or it's, regulatory. Yeah. Or it's, regulatory risk. I mean, regulatory risk is a huge, huge thing in so many industries.
1: Yeah, absolutely right. So that's extrinsic risk that you can't control and you need to, to kind of get an eye on that. So that's seven of them. And then finally, the last one is excellent management and good governance. Um, This is right to Charlie's third point, right? Mm -hmm. Management that has integrity and talent. That's that's what we're looking for as well. This is probably the most difficult thing to analyze. It's Mm -hmm. almost impossible in my experience to know for sure that you don't have a, you know, a, a person with a lack of integrity because they don't even know they have a lack of integrity until some horrible thing happens and then you get to see it. Whether they I have think, integrity or not.
0: I think you can I, I don't know. I think I can weed out a certain section of people who I would not want to put my money with. Tell me how. <laughs> I read all about them. I try to get a picture of how they write about their company and how well, they yeah, talk about it right. and who they put on their board and who that's, they're associated with. I mean That's all really good. I things. feel absolutely. I feel quite confident in my ability to do that. I do think that absolutely there's a point at which no one can evaluate somebody a hundred percent, even if they, (laughs) even if they're married to them or something, you know, like how many of us have made mistakes? (laughs) True. (laughs) So you never really know with somebody, but, um, but there's a, I, I think it's, it's very helpful to me to weed out the ones who I think are more obvious. And, again, just to mention the the Buffett letters, all he does is praise his managers over and over and over and over. His results are not created in a vacuum. His results are not created by accounting or by, I love these earnings so much, I don't care where they came from. They came from specific people who he names regularly and praises and thanks for their contribution um, and for loving to go to work every day. And, you know, that's the kind of thing that makes me trust a CEO.
1: Yeah, I think those are really good. I think you're right. You can get a sense of it. Um, okay. On to the one that's missing. Those are the eight, <laughs> but there's one obvious big giant missing one. Let's, let's go through them again. Let's make sure we've covered them all. Okay. And then I'll tell I think you what's I, missing.
0: Oh, you're saying that not that we didn't. That he said one that's missing. You're saying you think that he should add something else.
1: Oh, I know there's one more. (laughs) He just didn't put it on his list. So here's what Bill is saying are the critical principles. The business is simple, predictable. It's got free cash flow, dominates its market because it's set up large barriers to entry. As a result, it has got a high return on capital, um, a real strong balance sheet with very low debt doesn't need capital from the outside. It can do it on mm-hmm. its free cash flow, its growth, great management. <laughs> yeah. And it's not exposed to some extrinsic risk. Okay. So that's, that's, those are the ideal principles. What he's not putting on there, which he totally uses all the time. Number nine is that the business is on sale. And the reason. Oh, so then we I get think, to price. Yeah. The reason I think Bill doesn't put it up there is because He's a, what's known as an activist investor. He can come in with a great deal of capital. Like I said, he has 10 billion under management. so he can come into a company and buy enough of it to force a uh, to force the board to give him a seat or give his proxy a seat on the board, and then demand a change of a CEO, demand a change in the business plan, demand uh, use of assets differently and basically change the nature of the company for the future. So Ackman can come in there without what I with no margin of safety that I could see, and I've seen him do this for the last decade. Come in with the power to change a company, pay full price for it, whatever the market price is, and then alter the company and suddenly it's worth a lot more money.
0: Hmm.
1: So he, his ver, his ability to do that is different than than mine. And I don't think Warren Buffett does that. I, he and Charlie are pretty passive, hands-off investors. Definitely they, don't, definitely. they don't try to turn stuff around. I mean, the only time they do that famously is when they've made a mistake.
0: Absolutely.
1: And they're trying to get out it's of it. It's
0: not their favorite thing to do. Nope. Oof.
1: But we do that. And we, meaning you, Danielle, me, we need to be sure that we have a margin of safety. We are not activist investors. We are not on the board. We are not going to be able to force this thing or push it in any direction. Therefore, we have to buy with an eye toward our own humble humanity and our own ability to not see something that's coming, to make a mistake. We have to be able to buy, like Monash Pabrai says, like we're getting a free lottery ticket, a lot of big upside, but we got it so cheap there's no real downside here.
0: Yeah, I totally agree. I totally agree. I don't, I'm not sure I'd put that on this list because to me, like what I use this for, and I imagine what he uses it for, is to remind myself of what are the intrinsic characteristics of a great business. True. And then the True. buying is almost step two. Once you yeah. have these things, then what price 100%. am I willing to pay?
1: 100% right. So the way we use this is exactly as you just said. We use we use these eight principles as a screen. Um, before we dive into the work of really understanding everything. We look to see quickly, do we understand that it's got a dominant market position? Or at least we think so, right? We can verify it's got free cash flow. You know, the obvious, the the number stuff is very easy. Mm -hmm. Uh, The soft stuff are things that are a little harder, like large barrier to entry, dominant market position. Is it really simple? Things Mm -hmm. like that. Mm -hmm. That takes a lot more work. But to just get a general idea here using these have been so helpful to us. And, and I hope they're helpful to you guys too. I, I think they're fabulous. And then once you're through these eight and it really works to that point, then you go for the big checklist, right? Yeah. Then we really dig in. Yeah. And yeah. ultimately the stock goes or the company goes on your watch list and then it's just a matter of time. I mean, it might be a year. It might be 10 years. At some point that business is going on sale. And if it's still as wonderful as ever, then you got it. You get to buy it. All right. That's the idea anyway
0: love it maybe we'll get back to your giant checklist
1: ah the Ah. giant checklist okay well maybe so (laughs) see you next time
0: (laughs) all right thanks everybody
1: time to go play guys bye bye hi guys thanks for listening to invested if you enjoyed this episode and you want more information or to listen to additional episodes visit our website at investedpodcast.com and sign up for my virtual workshop right there Spots are definitely limited for this event. I'm not kidding. They really are. They sell out very quickly. So everything discussed on this podcast, by the way, is either my opinion or it's Danielle's opinion. And really important, it's not to be taken as investing advice because I am not your financial advisor, nor have I considered your personal situation as your fiduciary. So remember that. You're on your own here. This podcast is for your entertainment and education only, and I really hope you enjoyed it.